mountain peaks uh, of the Bible. Uh, And what we're going to do tonight is just pause for a second and think a bit more about that promise uh, as it is seen throughout the Bible uh, and also uh, what it means for us, how we can keep trusting that promise. If you were here last week, how it can be that five-pound promise uh, that we talked about. Um, And uh, a reminder, as we go through, if you've got questions, there's bits of paper on the floor, and we'll have a QA. and a Ruth and I will be attempting to ask your questions uh, that you come up with later. But this is a great opportunity for us to think, here is a God who makes and keeps promises. Uh, And we see it throughout the whole whole of the Bible. When we looked at the promise to David last week in 2 Samuel 7, that wasn't the first time God had made that promise. There are lots of mountain peaks uh, of this promise as we go through. So strap yourselves in, because I'm going to take you on a Bible overview uh, of uh, the promise of God, and it is going to be quick. Um, So we're going to start with Abraham. If you turn to uh, Genesis chapter 12, uh, which is on page 13. Uh, Genesis chapter 12, because this is where uh, God first makes that promise to Abraham. Um, and it's worth saying, it's not because there's anything special about Abraham. Actually, it's just because God chooses him. And he chooses him and he makes this promise. Genesis 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Abraham, Abraham was called Abraham at this point. The Lord had said to Abraham, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, if you look at that promise that God made, there's three parts to that promise, um, which we'll see keep coming up um, as we go through. The first one is people. Can you see there in verse 2? I will make you a great nation. So from this one man... God is going to make a great nation. It says later in Genesis, it'll be as, as many as the stars in the sky or a sand on the seashore. You know, I don't know if you've ever been down to the beach and tried to count the grains of sand on the seashore. There's quite a lot of them. That's quite a lot of people that God is going to make descend from this one man, Abraham. So he's promising his people will be a great number. He then goes on to say, uh, or as he says in verse 1, uh, he'll give them a place to live. So he tells Abraham to leave his household and go to the country that I will show you. So this is a place that God is preparing for those people to live. Initially with Abraham and his immediate family, but then for this great nation that will come from him. And then the final thing we see there is is blessing or God's presence. It's there so many times in verse 2 and 3, you can hardly miss the word bless. God will bless Abraham, uh, and through uh, he, the nation that comes from him, there'll be a blessing to others. You know, God's blessing, his, his presence, his rule over his people, it, it's where this kind of promise finds its, it, it, its key, really. God being with his people, them being his gods. People, place, presence. This is the promise that goes throughout the Bible. Because oh, we started Abraham, but of course, it's not a new idea. If you think back to creation, God told Adam and Eve, be fruitful and increase in number. 
people. He'd given them a place uh, to live, the Garden of Eden. And he was with them, walking through that garden. His presence with them. But the problem had been that sin destroyed it. Death was introduced, and so Adam and Eve had to be banished from that garden and from God's presence. And and the blessing, uh, as we read in Genesis 3, becomes a curse. But even in that curse that God gives in Genesis 3, there there are those hints of grace. It says um, that that someone will come to crush the head of the serpent, of Satan. The person who has deceived Adam and Eve will have his head crushed by one of Eve's offspring. And so in many ways, you can actually think of the Bible, as we track through from that point, as we're looking for this serpent crusher. Who is going to be this one who will come and bring about this rebuilding of the promise God has with his people? And that's why when we get to this promise of Abraham in Genesis 12, it's such a monumental moment. Because here we're starting to see, here is the beginning of that relationship being rebuilt. God is going to live with his people once again. And so if we track through a timeline of what's going on, we can start with Abraham. And we have the, uh, the people, the place, and the presence of God being promised. And as we keep going through the remarkable story of Abraham um, and Genesis, uh, if you read it through later, um, the family does grow. Uh, and there are, there are a number of people. But they end up, because of famine in Egypt, uh, the famous story of Joseph. So when we get to the start of Exodus, the second book of the Bible, there's a a number of people, but they don't have their own land, uh, and it doesn't really seem like they're getting much of God's blessing as they are in slavery, being forced to build more and more bricks. And so we enter uh, Moses. 400 years after Abraham, and in comes Moses. Now, uh, we may know the story of Moses from such great films as The Prince of Egypt, um, and uh, various children's Bible stories. But we know that, what does Moses do? He leads the people through the Red Sea, out of Egypt, uh, and to Mount Sinai. Normally the bit in the children's stories where the, it just stops. But um, at Mount Sinai, something really significant happens. Because God reiterates this promise. And this time, it's not just to the one man, but it's to the whole nation. So flick forward in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 23 on page 81. Because we're going to see that people, place, and presence comes up again. So let's uh, actually page 82, because we'll start at verse 30 to see the, the people coming. So Exodus 23 verse 30. Little by little I will drive them out before you until you have increased enough to take possession of the land. Can you see, as God at this point, he is, he is speaking his uh, law uh, to Moses, telling the people how to live. And yet in it, he gives them these promises. They are going to increase in number to the point where they fill the land that God is going to show them. There is going to be increase in number. And if you flip back to uh, verse 20 on the page before, God says, see, I'm sending an angel ahead of you to guard, your, guard you along the way and to bring you to the place I have prepared. 
This is not, I am preparing. It's, I have prepared. God has got a place ready for his people. And they're going to fill it. And on the meantime, that start that verse, he's sending an angel. God's presence, in the form of an angel, guides them through the wilderness uh, as they wander around for 40 years. God's dwelling in the tent and the tabernacle amongst his people until the point that they can enter that promised land. And so God reiterates uh, this promise again. And actually, one of the things that becomes clear um, as he does so, and he introduces law, his, his way that his people should live differently to the, the world around them, is that there'll be blessings uh, when they live in accordance with that. Uh, but there'll also be curses uh, when there's disobedience. And so we are, we're looking now at, are, they going, are God's people going to live in the way that God has told them to live now he's rescued them? And as we track the story uh, through the Old Testament, we see they do uh, conquer uh, the land of Israel, uh, the land that God has prepared for them. Uh, That's in the book of Joshua. Um, uh, And then the next book is the Judges, where people do exactly what they want to do. They don't live as though God um, is the final authority. And one of the ways, as as we keep tracking through and we get to the end of Judges, we see that is that they ask for a king. God should have been their king, but they want a king like the other nations. And so they make this guy Saul king, who we saw at the start of our, uh, of our series. Uh, Saul becomes king, but that doesn't last. And so we end up with God raising up his own king, his chosen king, uh, to be king of all Israel, as we've been seeing this term, David. I said this was going to be a whistle-stop tour. It really is. Uh, we've, we've reached David's. And as we got to the start of 2 Samuel 7 last week, uh, which is on page 310, um, the start of 2 Samuel, we see that the people of Israel, they're our nation now, and they're in a land, and they are at peace. See, the promise is, is still it's being fulfilled bit by bit. But as we saw last week as well, God hasn't finished. You know, at the start of the chapter, it seems like uh, David um, thought that this may have been it. He could just create God a permanent place. But God had more that he wanted to do. Uh, and hopefully, uh, if you were here last week, it kind of rings a bell that we see the same sort of things again. A people, a place, and a blessing. So, for example, um, 2 Samuel uh, chapter 7, verse 11, the second half of verse 11, where the, the paragraph break is. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. I mean, he's saying to David, here's a house, here's a dynasty for you. Here's a, it's going to be a great number of people. I mean, they're already a nation, but this is going to be more. Chapter 10, uh, the, uh, sorry, verse 10, the, the, the verse before. Uh, God says, I will provide a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. There's now an idea of a kind of permanence to that place. If you imagine planted, it's like one of those great trees in Platfields Park. You're not going to move them very easily, are you? There's a permanence to this place. And his presence, look at verse 14. I will be his father and he shall be my son. It's now a father-son relationship. 
His, God's presence bet- between himself and the king is like a father and a son. And, and that presence is, is passed on to his people. See, the great promise is there again. People, place, and presence. But there's one new element uh, that God adds at this point. You see, all this is going to come through one of David's descendants, that king who will last forever. If you look at verse 16, your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. You see, our, our focus now, um, as we go, if we look at this promise, and we were, if we imagine we're tracking through the Bible, that promise of a, a, someone who's going to be a serpent crusher uh, of Satan, well, it's now been narrowed down. We're now looking for a king who comes from one of David's descendants. Uh, and that search keeps going through the Old Testament as king appears and doesn't quite uh, stand up to it. David didn't, then his son Solomon. They, they all fall short. Uh, and the, the prophets, even uh, at Israel's darkest times, they remind uh, the people of that promise. Actually, when the, when the people are being taken off into exile because they've disobeyed God, they remind them, you've broken God's way of living, therefore you're not seeing the, the blessings of this promise. You're seeing the curses. And yet when the prophets want to offer hope to those people, this is the point that they point them back to. 2 Samuel 7, it forms the basis of the hope that is to come. And so the whole way through the Old Testament, we're looking again and again and again, is this serpent crusher coming? Is that descendant of David who will bring on his promise, where is he? And that is until we get to the first page of the New Testament. Matthew 1, verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. See, Jesus. Jesus is that promised king who brings in that promise. Fully and finally. As it says in the very start, son of David, son of Abraham. Here is the serpent crusher uh, we've been looking in. And Jesus brings in this new covenant, this new uh, way of looking at the promise. Not in the sense of, uh, when we think of the word new, it's not in the sense of a kind of a house that wasn't there before and he's got to build a new house. It's more in the sense like he's become a new man since, he's been, since he got married. Yeah, it's, a, it's a radical change rather than something completely new. It's a change for the better. Because the promise of people, place, and presence is still there. But it's blown wide open. We've only seen that kind of partial fulfillment in a small group of people in a small, relatively small place until we reach here. And then the breadth, the depth, the scope, the reach, whatever way you want to call it, goes far beyond anything that's there before. Because if we think, let me just give you a couple, uh, I'll give you an example for each of those. God's people. You see, it's no longer a nation, but it's open to anyone. Romans 10, verse 12 says, For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. 
For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. See, it's no longer about being a Jew, part of Israel. It's about calling on the Lord. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Anyone can do that. In fact, if you haven't done tonight, you might want to think about what that means. But as your calls, your call on the name of the Lord and you're saved, you're brought in to God's people, into the church. And so that promise that God's made for people, it grows exponentially. As you think about every Christian who, uh, in every part of the world, who has ever lived. That's quite a lot of people. That is a great nation. And a place, uh, Ephesians 2 verse 6, God has saved us and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. You see, we're no longer, it's not about physical land anymore, but it's about a seat in heaven. Now, of course, we're not in heaven, but it's like we're on a, a, a long bungee rope that is anchored in heaven. We're never going to be able to get away from it. That's where God has placed us. It's where elsewhere in the New Testament says our citizenship is now in heaven, in a place that will never spoil or fade or perish. Not a, not a bad a, a physical land, something far better. And God's presence, well, it's no longer just in a tabernacle or a temple among his people. But 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, verse 19 says, uh, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, who you have received from God? You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your bodies. See, that temple language is, is now uh, use of our bodies because that's where God dwells. God's not joining amongst us, God's joining within us. And that guarantees that place for us. So can you see that as Jesus comes, that promise is thrown wide open? How much more encompassing it is, even to include people like he and me. And it's all come through Jesus. Nothing to do with us. And that's what, his cro- what he does on the cross. As he takes uh, those curses that we deserve for not living God's way, so that we can receive, fully receive uh, the blessings. And we have all the blessings now. But yet that promise has still got more to come. When we see it in all its fullest, most technical glory in the new creation. Listen to how John, the writer of Revelation, describes the new creation. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. 
Do you see there? People, a great multitude that no one can count. A place in the heavenly courts. Presence, Jesus on his throne with the people around him face to face. You see, when we track this promise through, we're not looking at a theoretical promise. We're looking at where we are heading. That promise that sweeps through the whole Bible was fulfilled in Jesus uh, and and it shows what life is going to be like. And he's going to take us with us because of God's magnificent, marvellous, matchless love. We're about to sing that if the musicians come up. Because if we think about who God is, that's what drives it, his love for us. This promise that he's made that he will keep. And so as we've seen this this promise in a sketch through the Bible, the question then becomes, so how do we keep believing, keep trusting that promise now? That's what we're going to go on to think about in just a moment. But we are going to first sing of God's magnificent, marvellous, matchless love that has brought this promise about. So why don't we stand and sing together? and 11 in the Red Bibles. We have Bibles in other languages and versions available at the back and page numbers for those are on the screen. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and he said, Who am I, Sovereign Lord, and what is my family, that you have brought me this far? And as if this were not enough in your sight, Sovereign Lord, you have also spoken about the future of the house of your servant. And this decree, Sovereign Lord, is for a mere human. What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, Sovereign Lord. For the sake of your word and according to your will, you have done this great thing and made it known to your servant. How great you are, Sovereign Lord. There is no one like you. And there is no God but you, as we have heard with our own ears. And who is like your people, Israel? The one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself, and to make a name for himself, and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations and their gods from before your people, whom you redeemed from Egypt. You have established your people, Israel, as your very own forever, and you, Lord, have become their God. And now, Lord God, keep forever the promise you have made concerning your servant and his house. Do as you promise so that your name will be great forever. Then people will say, the Lord Almighty is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established in your sight. Lord Almighty, God of Israel, you have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build a house for you. So your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. Sovereign Lord, you are God. Your covenant is trustworthy and you have promised these good things to your servant. Now be pleased to bless the house of your servant that it may continue forever in your sight. For you, Sovereign Lord, have spoken and with your blessing the house of your servant will be blessed forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks Maria for reading that do keep your Bibles open on that point because that's where we're going to pick up from uh, as, we, um, as we think about how we keep trusting this promise. In the here and now, how do we keep trusting this promise? Because David is a great example. He's just been given the promise um, in the start of two, 
uh, 2 Samuel 7. If you were here last week, we saw how it was a, a promise that God would uh, establish um, his people, his house, um, and how he would establish his king. And so how does David uh, respond? And then uh, as we think about that, we do, how, do, how does that affect us as we live in that gap between Jesus fulfilling uh, and the new creation bringing completely? How do we live in that, that gap? And so as we look at David in 2 Samuel 7, we first see need to see how he recognizes who he is. Verse 18. Uh, then King David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, sovereign Lord? And what is my family that you have brought me this far? And as if this were not enough in your sight, Sovereign Lord, you have also spoken about the future of the house of your servant. And this decree, Sovereign Lord, is for a mere human. You've got to remember, at the beginning of this chapter, uh, David was, had a plan to build God a house. But it wasn't God's plan. Now, David could have gone off and sulked at this point, couldn't he? But he didn't. He recognized who he was before God. Uh, he knows instead that he's graciously been included in a, in a huge promise. Uh, a promise that is all down to God, not mere humans, um, as he says at the end. And so David comes to this kind of, um, it seems to come to this humble realization uh, of who he is before God. You see, it's important for all of us to remember as we think about how we keep trusting God's promises that we don't bring God's promises about. Actually, we're caught up in these great promises that he's bringing about. We're just mere humans before a great creator. And that's the point where, where we, we look and we recognize our place. And humility, we say, we're nothing compared to you but because you have chosen us, we have everything. And that's a really freeing place to be, where I think David's got to, where I hope uh, we can see ourselves um, as Christians before God. Because it means we look outside ourselves for this promise to come about. We look to God. And that's exactly what David goes on to do in three ways during his, uh, during his prayer, prayer. Three ways that we can copy. Um, three ways that will help us remember and trust God's great promise. See, David looks up, he looks back, and he looks forwards. So firstly, David looks up, um, and we see that in verses 21 and 22. Uh, he looks at God's character. God has been revealing it throughout history. As we track through the Old Testament, God has been revealing again and again and again who he is. And now he's done it to David. And David's response in verse 21, For the sake of your word and according to your will, you have done this great thing and made it known to your servant how great you are, sovereign Lord. There is no one like you, and there is no God but you, as we have heard with our own ears. How great 
you are. David recognised that there is no one but this God. And because of how great this God is, that's why he's going to keep his promise. Because in keeping his promise, God gets the glory that he deserves. If we flip that around uh, just for a moment to make make a point. If God didn't keep his promise... His word wouldn't be trustworthy. Uh, we, people wouldn't look at him to say how great he is. He couldn't claim to be great because how would we know if he's, if he's telling the truth? But because that's not what God is like, that's not who he's revealed himself to be throughout Scripture, we know that he will keep his promise. It tells us in Hebrews that God's cannot lie. Isaiah says that God's word never returns empty. You see, his character means that what he says happens. And David knew that. You see, David knew that it came even from God's word in verse 23. It's your words. We've heard it with our ears. If we want to know God's character, we want to know his promise... We've got to open this book. That's where God's revealed it, in the Bible. If Actually, if we're not opening the Bible regularly, then we're going to quickly lose trust in who God is because we're not going to see who he is. We're going to quickly forget the promise because we're not going to be reminded of it. And we're not reading purely for head knowledge, of course. We're reading to increase faith in the promise-making, promise-keeping God's. And we see, as we do that, his loving, his gracious, merciful, uh, generous, uh, eternal, promise-keeping, promise-making, all the words that you can think of describe of God. That's his character. And because of that is who he is, that means he can be trusted. His words can be trusted. So when he makes a promise, it will come true. That's why David looks up. That's why we, f- we first need to look up. But then David goes on to look back. Sorry, look up, look back. Uh, verse 23 uh, and 24. See, David, uh, he's looking back to how God redeemed Israel um, through that great rescue that we were talking about with Moses, uh, establishing them ahead of other nations. Do you see... Uh, how he says there was no one like God and there's no one like his people. Verse 23. And who is like your people, Israel? The one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself and to make a name for himself and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations and their gods from before your people he redeemed from Egypt. You have established your people Israel as your very own forever. And you, Lord, have become their gods. See, don't we naturally, we trust people who've got a track record of keeping their promise. If you think about uh, wherever it is you work, uh, if you've got a task to complete and you need someone to help you, you you go and ask the person who's got a track record of doing what they'll say. You don't want to go and ask the person who says they'll do something uh, and a week later have done absolutely nothing um, to help you complete the task. You want someone who's got that 
pedigree, uh, that track record. And God's track record is 100%. Actually, in fact, he goes, often goes far above and beyond what his people uh, imagine he might do. And he's been doing that all through history. All through history, you can see God's people. He makes a promise to them. He fulfills it. Now, whereas David actually can only see part of that as he looks back to the rescuing from Egypt... We've got a huge privilege living between Jesus and the new creation because we see even more of it. We see the ultimate way that we can look back and see that God keeps his promise because we can look back and we see Jesus' death and his resurrection. The whole Old Testament was pointing to that one point uh, as, we've been, as we saw earlier. That promise is fulfilled and expanded through the Lord Jesus. You see, if you, if you remember, um, when Jesus uh, in, instituted the Lord's Supper, he gave his disciples the bread and the wine. He said, do this in remembrance of me. He was expecting even his followers who were with him to look back on what his death achieved for them, that salvation we were singing of earlier. He alone can rescue us. Only Jesus through his death. Paul, when he is writing to Timothy and training him, he said, remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. And the apostle Paul tells his uh, church leader that he's training to look back on Jesus. If these guys, the disciples, Paul, uh, the early church leaders have to look back on Jesus, then surely we have to as well. See, so if we're ever doubting God's promise, that's where we look back. We look up to God's character. We know that what he says will happen. And we look back and see his track record. We see what he's ultimately done to bring this about. What he'll do to keep God's promises. See, if we're ever doubting God's promise, I think these words of Amy Carmichael are really helpful. Our feelings do not affect God's facts. Our feelings do not affect God's facts. We know who God is. We can look back to see what he's done. And that means we can look forward to what he has promised. And that's exactly what David does in verses 25 to 29. He is looking forward Firstly, that God will keep his promise. Verse 25, And now, Lord God, keep forever the promise you have made concerning your servant and his house. Do as you promised, so that your name will be great forever. Then people will say, The Lord Almighty is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established in your sight. See, do you see there, again, it's David's example of, of seeing where he's got to. It's not that he wants his name to be honoured, it's he wants the Lord's name to be honoured. As he looks forward, it's not about uh, solely what he will achieve, it's about what the glory that God will get from keeping this promise. That's why God is going to do it. One day, every knee will bow before Jesus. Some willingly, some not so. 
but he will get the glory. And David recognizes that. And, and then he goes on to pray about the specifics, if you look at verse 27. Lord Almighty, God of Israel, you have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build a house for you. So your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. Sovereign Lord, you are God's. Your covenant is trustworthy, and you have promised these good things to your servants. Now be pleased to bless the, pe- the house of your servants, that it may continue forever in your sight. For you, sovereign Lord, have spoken, and with your blessing, the house of your servant will be blessed forever. See, notice as David prays, he isn't asking, he's not trusting in anything that God, uh, anything other than what God has said he will do, what God has promised. And they're the prayers that we can be certain God will answer in his timing, those things he's promised he will do. In fact, this whole prayer is a great model for us if we, you know, if we want to think about prayer. You know, he starts praising God for who he is, then thanking him for what's, what he's done, and then asking him to do things which are in line with the will that he's revealed. What a great model of prayer. And this all helps David to look forward to that promise. Actually, he didn't see it all fulfilled uh, in his lifetime but he trusted it. He had faith. And so as David looks forward, so can we. We know that this promise to David was fulfilled in the Lord Jesus, but we look forward to that new creation that we were thinking about. That that permanent paradise, uh, that place with God dwelling in the middle of this, him getting all the glory that he so rightly deserves. You see, this promise, people place, presence, still stands. It's still trustworthy because of who God is, because of what he's already done, and because what he says he will do. You don't just take my word for it. Listen to God's Revelation, verse 20, uh, chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. And he will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He was, who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. Our feelings do not affect God's facts. 